Welcome to this edition of CTSNet Beat. This is the podcast that keeps you up to date with all the latest news uh, in the world of kydothoracic surgery. Coming up in this edition, we have the brand new ISMIX consensus statement. Uh, we've got some really interesting new podcasts to tell you about. Uh, we want to tell you all about a fantastic resource for mitral surgery. Uh, there's a new uh, lung cancer paper out there that is going to change your practice. We have massive celebrity heart surgery news at the end of this podcast so don't miss that and we're delighted to have a special guest with us so stay tuned for this edition of ctsnet beat so let's get started uh, my name's Joel dunning and uh, i'm delighted to be joined here by umberto benedetto umberto you're a consultant uh, in bristol so just tell us a little bit about yourself and thank you very much for joining us Hi, Joel. Thank you for uh, this invitation. It's a great uh, honor for me to uh, be here with you today. Uh, as you said, I'm a uh, consultant art surgeon in Bristol, and uh, I do the adult uh, um, you know, part. Uh, I'm also an academic, so my uh, research is focusing on uh, uh, variation in outcomes and uh, new technique. Great. Well, thanks for joining us. So let's get started. So the first thing that caught my eye that's just come out is a great new consensus statement from ISMIX. ISMIX has always been one of our most innovative societies, uh, and they've done a great job again. Vino Tarani, uh, Tom Wynn, uh, uh, Nivad as the senior author, Bob Kai. It's a, it's a, a who's who list of, of everybody you would like to have on a TAVI paper. Now, what have they done? Well, they've actually done a really good job of doing, first of all, a meta-analysis of all the RCTs in TAVI versus surgical AVR. And, uh, and I suppose I haven't been keeping up with the breakneck speeds that uh, people have been doing studies, but they found 21 studies that are all RCTs, uh, all in intermediate and low risk. Amazing. 39,000 patients, 15,000 TAVIs and uh, surgical AVRs. Uh, so they put this together with a meta-analysis and then they got an expert group together to come up with some conclusions. So what did they find in their meta-analysis? And this is published in Innovations uh, this month. Um, so the intermediate, uh, these people were about 80 years old, SDS risk about 5%, and then the low risks are around 75 years old, with an SDS risk of, of only 2%. Uh, so in the groups, um, TAVI mortality was actually lower in the low risk group and the same in the intermediate risk group. Uh, in the uh, lower risk group stroke was lower for TAVI uh, and the same in intermediate but uh, most outcomes become the same at one year. Um, so, so basically they're finding that uh, in low risk and intermediate risk uh, basically TAVI and surgical AVI is pretty similar but they then went on and have done a really great and interesting table. I encourage you to, to look at this and this could sort of form the basis of some kind of MDT template because they've broken it down not just into intermediate risk and low risk but also bicuspid aortic valves, concomitant aortic aneurysm, concomitant artery, coronary artery disease and concomitant uh, atrial fibrillation and really come up with recommendations for when should someone have a surgical procedure versus TAVI. Um, really, if they've got high sort of above 5% risk, they're, they're recommending maybe go for TAVI first. Yeah. But for these uh, slightly less usual things, bicuspids, aneurysms, they're saying really we should still be going for surgical ABR. So great job, Ismix. Uh, well done. And uh, Umberto, um, uh, 
How do you think uh, the world of Tavi versus surgical AVR is going, and um, and and how do you think this will impact the treatment? Uh, hi, Joel. So uh, you know, clearly Tavi is uh, you know, an, a fantastic technology, uh, and uh, we have seen already you know allow us to treat patients with you know comorbidities with very good outcomes. So I don't think, as a surgeon, we can oppose the. Uh, you know, exponential adoption of this technique across different risk and age categories. Um, I still believe that uh, surgical AVR has a, um, you know, role, uh, especially in procedure where uh, um, really we can offer uh, uh, additional treatment. For instance, when it comes to bicuspid valve, we all know that a patient may have a concomitant orthopathy, uh, which, you know, a few times can result in RT dissection. Uh, this is just one example, again, extensive coronary disease. So I hope in the future, you know, this is a very great uh, attempt to uh, harmonize the effort from the surgical uh, group and the uh, TAVI group to come up with a, a logical uh, indication uh, for uh, aortibar replacement. Uh, I'm really much in favor of uh, uh, TAVI personally. And again, I hope the surgical community will somehow... Um, you know, take Tavi as uh, uh, an opportunity to come up with different solution that can have uh, additional benefit. Personally, I've been looking to the uh, Osaki uh, technique and uh, I've just published the uh, series here in Bristol. And for instance, when it comes to small annulus and uh, a young patient surgical uh, solution using this new procedure can give you low gradient and hopefully, you know, will provide a good uh, uh, functional recover, a better functional recover. Again, I hope this two, this two option will uh, uh, go together and, uh, you know, will become stronger and stronger over the time as a heart team uh, to decide which patient can be served with the best treatment. Great. And uh, just as a note, uh, Ismix Reimagined uh, is going to be from the 18th to the 20th of June. So this is going to be the Ismix virtual uh, conference this year, and I'm sure it'll be really interesting and there'll be a huge amount of TAVI discussion there. Uh, so if you're loving podcasts and by the fact that you're listening to this one, you must like them a little bit. Um, just uh, a little note that uh, have you seen the SCS uh, podcast? They're really good. Uh, they're run by Tom Varghese, David Cook and a whole host of other people. And they've got some really interesting podcasts uh, there. So there was a great one called Beyond the Abstract. Tom Varghese runs this. He did a nice one just before the SDS conference, um, um, sort of discussing what was coming up and also some interesting things about virtual etiquette, uh, how you should uh, conduct yourself in this virtual world, and, and did discuss some inequalities around the world in access to technology. That was a really nice one. Uh, Tom Cook is doing a series called Same Surgeon, Different Light. Um, he did a lovely discussion with Sidhu Gangadharan uh, from Beth Israel, and, uh, and Tom Varghese has done a fantastic one by our very own, uh, much loved from CTSnet, uh, Doug Wood, ex-president of the SDS. So have a really good look at those, uh, subscribe for that, uh, and the SDS podcast is fantastic resource. 
Um, just look at some other resources. If you go to the CTSnet front page, uh, you can see a little banner from the Mitral Foundation Teaching Library. Um, looks a bit like an advert, but it's not. This is David Adams, fantastic foundation from the Mount Sinai Hospital. And he just wants you to know about his amazing resources. So if you click on it uh, or go to mitralvalverepair.org, you're just going to find everything you ever wanted to know about mitral surgery. And as you all know, David Adam does 400 mitrals a year. I mean, he's just absolutely a god of mitral surgery, but he has put together this fantastic resource group. So what's he got on there? Well, he's got a whole teaching library of videos he's got mitral conclave uh, videos from the aats he's got round table discussions uh, surgical videos some of his grand rounds uh, and he's also got visiting professor lectures and actually they're not just mitral so he's got lars svensson there uh, talking about uh, aortic surgery duke cameron on marfans gilles dreyfus of course on mitral repair and joe caselli on aortic surgery so have a look uh, go to the ctsnet front page and click through there and have a little look about. Um, Umberto, did anything jump out uh, when you had a look at this website? Uh, Joel, yes, it's uh, very, very interesting. And as you said, there are sessions dedicated to technical aspects. There are other sessions dedicated to, you know, uh, presentation of difficult cases. Uh, it uh, goes from mitral to aortic. Uh, I've, uh, I've seen few sessions done by uh, Ismail El Hamid. Who is a, um, a um, you know who is uh, um, who is a surgeon with special interest in ROS procedure um, is uh, uh, proposing ROS procedure in adult patient. This is clearly is a controversial um, is a controversial uh, point, uh, but actually the result he presents are really encouraging. And uh, um, so, apart from technical aspect, is also providing good evidence. Great, yeah, so take a look at the Mitral Valve Repair uh, website uh, and tell us what you think. Um, just moving across very briefly to a bit of thoracic surgery. Um, one paper that just caught my eye at the World uh, Congress on Lung Cancer, which is actually from January this year, uh, was a really interesting neoadjuvant study of uh, atezolizumab. Uh, so this is going to change our practice. Basically, we, we all know uh, that, uh, that immunotherapies and targeted cell treatments going to change our practice. But this study uh, was giving uh, atezolizumab to 181 patients, mostly are bog standard middle of the range so stage one and two there are also a few stage three a's and a few stage three b's but mostly your middle of the bat uh, surgically treatable people instead of having surgery they had uh, atezolizumab every three weeks for two cycles uh, and then a month to two months later uh, we did an operation and then if they got uh, a pathological response they carried on with the adjuvant treatment for a year uh, so what did they find? Well, half of all patients were downstaged. Normally patients are upstaged by surgery, so 19% did get upstaged. But what was the pathological regression? Well, major pathological response was 21%. Was what does that mean? That means in one in five patients, they had 10% or less viable tumor cells. 7% of patients, there was no cancer left at all. So uh, virtually everybody, apart from three patients, had a pathological regression looking at uh, destroyed tumor cells. So, so really, all patients, uh, their tumors were shrinking, some, some were shrinking amazingly, and some disappeared. 
Um, the other thing that us surgeons worry about is, is it going to cause terrible adhesions? Is the operation going to be a nightmare? Well, brilliantly, uh, a load of these were performed by minimally invasive surgery uh, and the uh, requirements to, for, for opening and converting to thoracotomy was, was very low, only about 10%. Uh, and then finally, for the people with stage three disease, their one and a half year survival rate was 87%, crazy. Uh, and the intraoperative complication rate was only 3%. So I think just like esophageal surgery, where we seem to do uh, chemotherapy always before surgery, I think we're all gonna start uh, very soon uh, giving neoadjuvant treatments prior to lung cancer surgery. So really interesting, and, and I'm sure this will cause practice change very, very soon. So now we're going to come on to Umberto's paper uh, in the Lancet Regional. Fantastic work, uh, Umberto. Clearly uh, a huge amount of work. Um, Umberto has uh, had great involvement with our National Adult Cardiac Surgery Audit Database in the UK, uh, a really comprehensive database. We're going on for many years, uh, and, uh, and he's done many, many analyses of this database. Uh, but Umberto, maybe you could tell us a bit about, a little bit more for our American listeners about our database and then tell us about the paper you've just published in the Lancet. Thank you, Joel. Yes, so in the UK, uh, we have this great resource of a national data set, which is uh, intended um, uh, to provide a, a benchmarking across units. And clearly, this is also an opportunity for research initiative is collecting, um, you know, several a variable related to patient uh, patient baseline, but also um, uh, socioeconomic uh, uh, factors, uh, procedural details, and outcome, including not just mortality, but also um, you know new uh, renal failure, stroke, uh, uh, re-exploration, uh, and uh, currently the data set uh, goes back to 1996, uh, clearly uh, up to date, and. Uh, um, you can follow the trend in changing case mix. You can follow the trend in uh, uh, improving in mortality and outcomes. Uh, it's very, very interesting and can provide a great insight into the change and outcome uh, in our clinical practice. Uh, this paper is an example on uh, how this data set can inform clinicians uh, on areas that you know, may be worth to uh, be explored to improve uh, patient outcomes. Um, basically, in particular, this paper, I looked at the outcomes in a patient operated in a public hospital, you know, we call them the NHS hospital, where in principle, you have the same team, uh, you have the same surgeon, the same team, the same nurses, the same intensive care, uh, and the same team on the world looking after uh, our patient, and therefore, you don't expect a major variation in outcome uh, related to uh, non-clinical factors. But in reality, what we found is that uh, patients uh, who uh, are public payers, they have a, a significantly higher mortality after adjusting for baseline characteristics and socioeconomic factors. And, uh, uh, and this difference is uh, significant, is relevant, especially in elective surgeries. Um, among the possible explanation, uh, clearly patient uh, with the private, uh, private uh, payers uh, are, uh, uh, look after the same uh, surgeon, the same, there is a bit possibly, um, there is this concept of continuity of care because patient is looked after the same, you know, uh, doctor throughout their journey. 
uh, on the other hand, uh, public uh, payers, they may have seen uh, different doctors during their journeys and sometimes you can have a rupture in the communication, um, uh, which this may, for instance, explain part of this uh, difference. I've also looked whether, for instance, public payers, they may have subject of like training cases, so we may let trainees to operate on public patients while, um, you know, private patients are normally operated by the uh, named consultants, but in reality, um, being operated by trainee is not a risk factor for uh, uh, mortality because normally we select those patients, you know, for training. Uh, and therefore, I guess uh, a possible explanation is uh, uh, again in the continuity of care that is uh, provided more likely to patients who are private payers. Um, and all we call this this devil. The devil is in the details. So it's possible that small aspect, for instance, you know, the patient uh, present like is, is, is breathless and you do an echo straight away or you do an echo after, you know, 12 hours the next day. Sometimes, you know, we all know private patient may have a, um, uh, have a priority. Um, and um, uh, also another aspect that we may need to point out is that private patient may get an operation uh, sooner rather than later. So they don't need to wait uh, for too long while this I think is acceptable in a private hospital who is uh, um, you know clearly there to provide a, a fast service for private payers. Um, this somehow raised the question whether we can use NHS you know public facility to provide uh, private service uh, and in some extent you know this private session will be taken um, uh, taken off uh, you know from the uh, public payer. So clearly, there are lots of you know sort lots of implication uh, that you know we can look at. Uh, but clearly, I think surgeon as a surgeon, we are really um, focused on specific techniques and uh, uh, surgical details and new innovate and, and innovation. But uh, in reality, also just the basic attention to our patient. And for instance, this is an opportunity to understand that. Um, attention to details is also very important to improve uh, patient outcomes. Yeah, so maybe if there is a wider message, uh, looking at the difference between our private and public hospitals, it's exactly what you say. Uh, the private hospitals, we, we very good continuity of care, they're treated very quickly, uh, and, and maybe it is that attention to detail. Uh, so yes, a great paper in, in the Lancet Regional Health. And uh, just, just with your involvement in our national audit uh, database, you know, what else is coming up uh, that we might be able to hear that we have obtained from our national data set? What else interesting might we see from you in the near future? So Joel, we'll, uh, we have just been uh, uh, provisionally accepted another paper looking at the uh, outcome in our dissection. Again, it's a very interesting uh, uh, overview of the national of uh, the national activity. Uh, we uh, look at trend in mortality in stroke um, and uh, uh, clearly variation across region. For instance, something which has been already been described is the relationship between number of cases per year, per center, and uh, clinical outcomes. Clearly, there is a need of uh, and you know, to establish a network of center to make sure that you know if it's possible that section should be done in center which can guarantee a minimum volume uh, per year. Um, we also looked at different uh, neuroprotective strategy in uh, 
uh, dissection and uh, also these uh, will be published soon in the European Journal of Cardiothoracic Surgery. Another important initiative has been on minimally invasive. You know, we all know the UK, it's a great, um, you know, it's a great country for minimal invasive surgery. However, we still haven't seen evidence of the safety and the efficacy of minimal invasive program in the UK in cardiac surgery. Actually, I've just presented an audit uh, during the um, uh, national meeting in minimal invasive surgery and uh, uh, result from the national data set uh, confirmed that minimal invasive surgery is very is, is safe and is effective. And uh, hopefully this uh, uh, new evidence will uh, promote a wider adoption of minimally invasive techniques in the country. And obviously we're all in the era of COVID. Do you think you'll be able to use the database to, to get some insights into COVID? Uh, yes, Joel, the uh, COVID uh, uh, pandemic has in some extent facilitated linkage uh, you know, among different data sets uh, you know, for research purpose. And uh, again, we've been given now the opportunity to link the national data set uh, with uh, uh, administrative data set and other data set that can inform on the uh, COVID status. So hopefully we'll be in the position to provide an evidence of uh, uh, changes in case mix and shift in mortality during the pandemic. And uh, for instance, as we have seen, the pandemic is not going to fade away completely in the near future. So hopefully this research will uh, uh, highlight whether uh, doing surgery in uh, clearly doing emergent surgery in someone who is COVID positive, you know, it's safe and uh, will provide further evidence uh, to support and guide treatment of COVID patients. Great. Well, thank you very much for that fantastic insight and for all your hard work with our national data set. And now massive celebrity heart surgery news. Many of you might know that Prince Philip, the Queen's husband, the grandfather-in-law to Meghan Markle, uh, has been admitted to hospital. He's been in hospital for 17 days. He initially went to King Edward VII, a small but very glamorous private hospital in London. Uh, but then, mysteriously, he was transferred to Bart, our biggest cardiothoracic centre in the UK, um, and has now been discharged back to King Edward VII having had a procedure. Now, Prince Philip in 2011 had a coronary stent, so some news outlets have incorrectly been telling the world that he has had another coronary stent. But in fact, Prince Philip was in hospital with heart failure. He was in heart failure because he had severe aortic stenosis, and Prince Philip has just had a tavy at the age of 99, 12 weeks before his 100th birthday. I hear it's all gone absolutely perfectly, uh, I hear there were quite a few stressed cardiac surgeons standing by, but nothing went wrong at all. So well done to the Tavi team in Bart's, and we all wish him a speedy recovery. Uh, so that's all we've got time for on the CTS NetBeat podcast. Uh, come back next week and in the following weeks uh, for all the best news and updates and interesting interviews. Keep an eye out for Jan's posts where we keep you up to date with journal and news scans and uh, look for our twice weekly emails on Jan's and also Pulse, the most interesting things on the internet in cardiothoracic surgery.